We'll find at the end of each row, on the outside, uh, the attendance registers which are not for us to police you but for us to connect and keep accurate records and uh, for you to connect with us so please pass them up and down the row. Uh, Diane maybe you should come up and could we have this mic live. There's something very special happening in St. Louis tonight and uh, would you like to tell us Miss Diane Becker? This week I've been involved with uh, the International Christian Visual Media Conference um, that happens to be in St. Louis this year and it's following. Uh, the next thing is the Christian Booksellers Association. Tonight there is a worship and it's at the America Center. It's featuring Max Lucado and Stephen Curtis Chapman. So um, it is open to the public. So if you have, if you want to journey down there, it'd be a great thing to do this evening. Thanks. What time? what, where, when, why, how, 7 p.m. <laughs> Thank you so much. That's information worth having, isn't it? We start our summer series this morning, which is going to be an exposition of the first part of Hebrews chapter 11, which is the great chapter of faith in the Bible, and it's called Just Add Water. Adding faith to your life makes such an immense difference and this will be uh, our theme for the rest of the summer. It was 1989, and I set off one perfect afternoon uh, in Yosemite. We camped that night in Tuolumne Meadows, and it was an idyllic situation. The sun was slanting in, in golden beams down the valley, and everything turned to gold. The next morning we set off, and it was still glorious and fresh, and uh, the scenery obviously is breathtaking. Began to toil up a steep pass and the weather began to change. And by noon we were being lashed by wind driven, uh, rain driven by a strong wind. Uh, at about 5 p.m. we found a somewhat level spot. It was all rocky and uncomfortable. But we made camp of sorts in a howling wind blowing Black clouds of swirling rain. Campsite was rocky. Everything got met, wet as we unpacked. My sleeping bag was soggy. We couldn't cook, and I had an energy bar for supper. And then a river started flowing through the tent. And uh, just after my energy bar, the thought entered my head, what am I doing here? Around 9 p.m., I asked it out loud, what are you doing here? And by 10 p.m., I was thinking about a steaming cup of hot chocolate and a dry bed and the loving arms of my wife and a soft pillow. At 1 a.m., having not slept a wink, I was angry. And at 4 a.m., the misery turned to rage the dawn was dark and the wind never let up, so we had to shout to be heard above the wind as we ate our energy bar. Well, I did something very noble. I offered to take anybody who wanted to uh, back to the car and back to uh, Santa Barbara's warm, welcoming arms. Uh, actually, I would have made the exit even if nobody had come with me. About half the party came with me. 
And I was asking and grumbling all the way down, what am I doing here? If you were weary and worn and sad, and the Hebrew readers of the letter to the Hebrews were, and this hammock appeared, wouldn't you say, I'm going to rest my weary bones? They were sad and discouraged, listless, rudderless, and faith is something like a hammock. But you'd also feel nervous about that hammock, wouldn't you? Because you can't see what supports it. And then this isn't me in the picture, but that's happened to me before. <laughs> you take a spill. You think it's anchored securely, but there's a practical joke element to hammocks. And you, until you learn to trust it and entrust yourself, it can be a bit harrowing trying to balance yourself in a badly made hammock. Now the book of Hebrews, as I say, the readers were asking, what am I doing here? And as you read the book, you'll glean little hints about the causes. I'm not going to reference them in the text because I'd love you to read the book of Hebrews for yourself. But you gather that the novelty had worn off. It started with great excitement, enthusiasm, and then it became ho-hum. That there were temptations afflicting them, and they were struggling with them. There were doubts, doubts about, is Christianity true? Was I right to leave Judaism? What about all the other religions? There was definitely some discouragement about personal sin, they might have been thinking, I'm sacrificing too much. Just look at some of my friends who are enjoying a lifestyle that I once enjoyed, and now this is a bit like a straitjacket. And then there was persecution. So in chapter 10, the apostle says to them, uh, you started so well and you even endured persecution and the confiscation of your goods and used to visit other believers in prison. Don't give up, is what he says in chapter 10. Some of these earthquakes shake your faith as well, don't they? I wouldn't be surprised if at least half the congregation was feeling a bit shaky in their faith this morning. I've been there. Some are little tremblers, and some shatter your life, and it crumbles into ruins, and you think, what am I doing here? So what the book of Hebrews does in chapter 11 is give us secure anchors for the hammock of faith. It gives us unshakable foundations. It is anchored in God himself. And there are a thousand years of testimonial to say it really is so. So hear the word of God in Hebrews chapter 11 verses 1 and 2. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it the elders obtained a good testimony. The word now is a preposition. When I say now, I'm inviting you to reflect on everything that I've been saying and now we are going to apply that so that at this moment you should be thinking about the things that shook your faith 
Now he says there is faith which is substantial. By it, he says, they had good report. But you're going to say to me, it's the substance of things hoped for. And I've hoped for many things that never came true. So this statement, therefore, sounds a little bit like balderdash to me. You know that nice word, balderdash? It just means rubbish or garbage. <laughs> and what the apostle is doing is not hitching, asking you to hitch your faith to your star. You know, I want to get well. Uh, I want to survive my hip surgery on Monday, July 1st. Uh, I want my bank account full. Maybe the crassest thing I can say is you hit your star to winning a lottery of some sorts or other, and the star turns out to be a meteorite. So what the apostle does here is not say faith is the substance of the things you hope for, but he couches it in the biblical sense that hope is the hope of glory. Biblically, whenever you see the word hope, your mind should go to the book of Romans where the apostle says, we have the hope of glory. So it's not hitching your faith to your meteorite. It's hitching your faith to the promises of God which are yea and amen in Christ, to the finished work of Jesus which nothing can change, and if you don't have the right idea and definition of faith and hope, you really put yourself at the mercy, at the mercy of the flood of circumstance and at the mercy of the ebb of your own disappointment. So let's look at Hebrews 11 verse 2 and see these were words for substance and evidence, which I read in the New King James Version, but just about every version of the Bible you read will have different words there. So under substance, some translations say faith is being sure or having conviction or assurance or confirmation. And of the word evidence... Those same translations use the word certain and proof and conviction and assurance. So you get some idea that the word assurance being used of both words, they have some overlap. And you get the idea that this is talking about a certainty about the fact that if this was a court case and faith were on trial... there would be substantial evidence that it is what the Bible says it is. That this would not be a flimsy case. It would be well grounded. So here's how we're going to look at these verses. There are two main headings. First of all, faith is substantial. Uh, we can be confident about it because, number one, it's grounded in God himself. And number two, Christ is the superior fulfillment of all that was promised. 
And then secondly, we'll see that there is evidence that this is true. Over 4,000 years, starting with our forefathers, the experience has been consistent. And then we will see that the universe itself is evidence that faith is substantial. So let's go to that first point. Faith is substantial and we can be confident. Why? Because one of the posts supporting the hammock of faith is none other than God himself. So in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, long ago, many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, that is the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And this is what he did. After making purification for sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty of God. So let's just take a closer look. God has spoken many times in many ways and the prophets gave a blueprint of salvation. He's going to go on to say that Moses, who was highly revered as the one who took the blueprint and actually built like an architectural model of the whole thing, how it works with the temple and priests and sacrifices, it was all modeled in the nation of Israel. Now what God has done in these last days has spoken to us by His Son, who is the reality of the blueprint the prophets gave and of the model that Moses built. All of that was a foreshadowing. Now we have the reality. And it's glorious. Faith is substantial and we have confidence. But secondly, Christ is the superior fulfillment of all that was promised. So the writer to the Hebrew goes through all the great events of the Old Testament relating to salvation. He says Christ is greater than the angels themselves. And the angels appeared to the prophets and uh, appeared in the Old Testament. Heavenly beings, Christ is greater. Moses, the greatest prophet and the founder of the nation, Christ is greater than Moses. The priesthood, the priesthood that is the bridge between a sinning people and a holy God who are the bridge who brings the two together through the sacrificial system and all the festivals and everything. Christ is greater because he fulfills it. And the covenant with God, the very heart of the nation that God covenanted to bring them out of Egypt and form them into a people and guided them through the wilderness and brought them into their own promised land, Christ ushers in a greater new covenant, a fulfillment of that old one. And what is more, 
He is far more than a great high priest. He is an all-sufficient Savior. And this is what the writer of the Hebrews will surface if you read it. And I ask you to open your heart to each of these statements to embrace these things as reality that Christ has brought. Apply them to your conscience so that the full satisfaction of a sufficient Savior takes hold of you and grips you. For it's part of your faith. Let them deal with the dark fears you have, with the anxiety, with all the Darkness, whatever and wherever it may be. Here is what Jesus did. He gave himself once for all as a final sacrifice for your sin. He is perfecting us for all time by a single offering. He is giving us a clean conscience by the shedding of his own blood. He is being our sympathetic high priest before God. Interceding for us day after day in heaven. Right now, interceding for you putting his laws in our minds and writing them on our hearts, being our God, remembering our sins no more, promising never to leave us or forsake us. So the high priest used to do his daily duty in the temple and then went home to relax and sleep for the night. The lawyer presents the case and then goes on to other things. Jesus is constantly involved in these things without let up because it's not what he does, it's who he is. If you will digest that, if you will allow that to Register in your heart and mind. There's no doubt that your life will turn into a fragrant flower garden. Then what about the two evidential certainties? Well, this, he says, is what the ancients were commended for. The ancients, and they will be uh, expounded in the next weeks over the summer... He gives a whole list of them, 33 verses long, in the rest of Hebrews chapter 11. People of every age group, so that every person here can identify by age. People of every circumstance, so each one of you in your circumstances are identify, can identify yourself with these witnesses. These witnesses are consistent and they span the centuries so that in every conceivable situation, in every walk of life, they give testimony that faith conquers all. 
You want to call the Better Business Bureau of Heaven and ask, are there any references that I can see whether this is accurate? The book of Hebrews chapter 11 is what the Better Business Bureau will give you. And then he does something breathtaking. He says the universe itself is evidence that faith is substantial. You want to know? Well, look around you. Look at the universe, look at nature, look at your neighbor. That is all evidence that faith is substantial. Well, this is what he says. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Come on, be honest. Do you really believe that? <laughs> Isn't this really destroying my faith? And I know people who, on the basis of modern scientific materialism, have had their faith totally destroyed. If you have been through the public school system, and through a public college or university, you will know that virtually universally it is said that um, the universe just happened and God has got nothing to do with it. So Herman Melville uh, humorously referred to the running battle between the clod and the stars. <laughs> And I thought he'd make a good way for us to enter into this subject which is glorious and is going to affirm your faith in ways that you never dreamt of. We are born into the existence of the clod. Because of our separation from God, the stars are a dimension that we are aware of. So you love beauty and truth and justice. You long for meaning and satisfaction in your life. You celebrate good news and you get angry at evil news. You want respect and you feel a heel if you're honest with yourself when you disrespect other people. People are not in the beautiful little phrase of the Simpson, Simpson family wet robots, <laughs> they have freedom of action which is very real. Those are all star-like qualities which have got no place in the clod except as a memory of what we once were before Adam took us out of the realm of, of God's presence. Now, many would have us believe that this is an either-or situation. That you can either have the material world as the clod, or you can have the spiritual world with the stars. But you see that they ask different questions, measure different things, and have got a different method of operating. In the material world, we are involved with test tubes and measurements, and we get results in statistics. 
in the spiritual world, you can't quantify things like love and beauty and truth. They are values. They are subjectively measured, but we celebrate them corporately, and all our subjective measuring of them resonates with us very deeply. And the result is in satisfaction. Now, there are many who would have you believe that these are an either-or situation. That uh, on this side, you must be able to reproduce your experiments. And in this side, you want a meaningful response to the whole thing. Now, let me say that that is an entirely false dichotomy. That those who say that science is all reason, and I'm going to use the word religion here, uh, faith you could use, or I think religion's a good catch-all. This is all fantasy. That this is fact-based. And this side is conjecture and uh, groping for ideas, and it's fanciful. That side is factual and this side is all fairy tales. Well, you want to understand that they ask different questions. And uh, the questions are going to determine your method of operation and a whole lot more. The other day I was in the garden and a mosquito came and landed on my arm and I swapped the mosquito and with that, my sweaty finger lost my wedding ring. And it flew off to the side, and I've got a flower bed there where I store leaves so that they can form mulch. And this ring, the same color as the leaves, flew in there, and I spent an hour looking for it, and my wife helped me, and she spent about 30 minutes looking for it, and I concluded... Oh, heck, I've lost my wedding ring. Just hope this isn't Freudian. <laughs> well, my wife's resourceful, so she got a uh, metal detector from Sarah Crook, Crooks. And with a metal detector, she found the ring, which I'm very grateful for. So here we have a metal detector. It discovers the ring. But it can't tell you anything more about the ring than what percentage gold it is, what carats of gold it is, that it's a circle, uh, can measure it, give you the width, the diameter, and so on and so forth. It can't tell you why that ring is so sentimentally valuable to me. It can't tell you that it represents a deep and a profound commitment that it represents a love that goes beyond any human categories. It represents a beauty which makes it so valuable that you can't just say it's probably worth $300 at the price of gold today. It's priceless. So you see, they ask different questions. And here I've changed the word from clod to science to scientific materialism so that you can understand that what is taught today 
And what TV and all the reading you do is not really pure science. It's scientific materialism which uses its reason and exercises faith. And I'll show you that in a minute. As much as religion uses its reason and exercises faith. So you remember that first diagram that it's either reason or fancy. It's either fact or fantasy. You've got to change that and say, no, both scientific materialism and religion both use reason and they both exercise faith. So let's find out in what way. Now, I did a bit of homework here. And uh, I don't pretend to know everything that's going on in the realm of science. I'm a layman there. So I got together with Michael Lamar, who's a professor of mathematics at um, SLU University, and I said, talk to me. I need to know that I'm not just totally fanciful about this. And we talked about it. And he said, oh, of course science exercises faith or scientific materialism because they make a statement of faith saying, there is no God. Now that is a huge statement of faith. How do you know there's no God? In order to say there's no God, you have to be able to do two things. You have to know everything because, as we will see, there's a lot of things we don't know. And you have to be able to be everywhere because God may be in the next multiverse or in a different dimension. And so it's really impossible to make that statement. And then out of that statement, they model the entire creation and they believe their models. In contrast... We of the Christian faith believe God is, and we put faith in the fact that the Bible provides the model. Now, I'm just going to quote to you, uh, give you statements made by atheists, and uh, they will, they will um, pretty much affirm what I'm saying. This is uh, the atheist Thomas Nagel. He's written a book, Mind and Cosmos, Why the Materialist Neo-Darwinian Conception of Nature is Almost Certainly False. Okay, so this is an atheist speaking. He says, I want atheism to be true. And I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. I suspect the like that which he doesn't expound on is a statement of autonomy. I don't want God in my life because he's an interfering busybody. It will mess with my life and require that I bow my knees. 
Materialism then says a journalist who is an atheist critiquing the book, and uh, there's the web, web reference to it. Materialism then is fine as far as it goes. It just doesn't go as far as materialists want it to. Now listen to this sentence. It is a premise of science. That's the faith, you see. Not a finding. Scientists do their work by assuming, there's the faith word, that every phenomenon can be reduced to a material mechanistic cause and by excluding any possibility of non-material explanations. And now he affirms that materialism cannot account for the stars in us. Nagel insists that we know some things to exist even if materialism omits or ignores or is oblivious to them. Reductive materialism doesn't account for the brute facts of existence. It doesn't explain, for example, why the world exists at all or how life arose from non-life closer to home it doesn't plausibly explain the fundamental beliefs we rely on as we go about our everyday life, the truth of our subjective experience, our ability to reason, our capacity to recognize that some acts are virtuous and others aren't. This is an atheist journalist writing this. And it will be strongly affirmed by all sorts of people with all manner of disabilities. There are people with physical disabilities. <laughs> I think of a Johnny Erickson Tarder, quadriplegic, at the age of 17. And the radiance and the joy and the purpose of her life goes way beyond her just being a materialistic, quadriplegic person. I think of autism, which is some sort of mental disorder with emotional consequences. And somebody like Professor Temple Grandin who says, my autism is a gift to you. And she does things nobody else on the face of the earth can do because of it. I think of all the bipolarity in the world. If we were just material, well then, let's lock them all up. But you see, most of the profound artists of our world were bipolar, and they bring a unique contribution to our joint existence. They all add unique value to us, which science cannot measure and actually has to sneer at. They live fulfilled, meaningful lives, and the disability is part of their gift to us. So the Bible asserts that the universe framed by the Word of God verifies faith. God spoke it into being and he speaks our salvation into being with the same result. That's the point he's making. Well, you say, could it be that our universe was spoken into existence? 
Now I'm going to talk about stuff that even scientists don't understand. So don't feel dismayed if you don't know what I'm talking about. I don't know exactly what I'm talking about either. <laughs> but you see, the exploration of the subatomic universe is showing a whole different dimension to creation that scientists are just baffled by. The quantum world. Just Google quantum universe and see there's some excellent YouTube uh, presentations by really people who know what they're talking about. And here are just three theories that they are debating at this time. The first one is the information theory, which would be submolecular biology. Let's look at that one first. The information by James Glick. Here is uh, none other than Richard Dawkins, the famous crusading atheist speaking. Uh, DNA, says Glick, is quintessential, quintessential essential information molecule. An alphabet and a code, six billion bits to a human being. Golly, I'm impressive, eh? <laughs> what lies at the heart of every living thing is not fire, not warm breath, not a spark of life, declares the evolutionary theorist Richard Dawkins. It is information. It is words. It is instructions. If you want to understand life, don't think about vibrant, throbbing gels and oozes. Think about information technology. And God said, let there be light. The worlds were framed by the word of God. The word became flesh. And how about this one, string theory? And the irony of this atheistic statement will bring a wry smile to your dial. General relativity goes on to say that at the center of a black hole, that is at the beginning of the universe, is an infinitely dense point with zero volume. Let me just explain that. The only way that a materialist can explain the universe is to recreate the scene. So if it's exploding, it means that sometimes there must have been an explosion. So let's just shrink everything by computers and they don't know where to stop. Because, remember, there's, there can't be God, so it must be just materialism. And you end up with an infinitely dense point with zero volume, a singularity. And that's where things come unstuck. I'm not saying this, he's saying it. The idea of an infinitely dense dimensionless point sounds crazy to most of us. But the most surprising thing about singularities is that they don't make sense to quantum physicists either. <laughs> well, there is one theory that can handle both the quantum forces and gravity and does away with that pesky, dimensionless point. <laughs> I find it so ironical. All matter, energy, and the particles that carry the four forces is made up of tiny loops of vibrating energy called strings. They are tiny, as in 100 million billion times smaller than an electron. But there they are. 
So what does God say? And that's from uh, Prof. David Jamison from the School of Physics in Melbourne, Australia. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now if we go to ask.com and pose the question, how many dimensions are there? Their best answer starts with a traditional view. There are four dimensions. You're living in four dimensions right now. They are uh, length. I can jump up and down. They are side to side. I can step right or left. And I can step forward and backward. And I live in time. At noon, it'll no longer be 10.30 and so on. Those are the four dimensions. Now look at this. Actually, you will hear that there are 11 dimensions. That refers to the fact that with what we can observe, an 11-dimensional model makes the math work. <laughs> Talk about faith. That is, creates a mathematical model that matches current Theory, conjecture, supposition, and observation. Aren't those the very things they said that religion was? There is nothing in the equations that prohibit more dimensions. And logically, there is no reason why there would be any top limit to the number of dimensions that exist. So what dimensions might have spiritual reality in them? Is God not in a different dimension? Jesus says, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. We have received, says the Apostle Paul, the Spirit of God, that we might know the things given freely by God. And so, as the math works beautifully, which is lucky... <laughs> Because there's not a shred of evidence for any of those missing dimensions. Our best hope is to watch and learn from what one great uncontrolled experiment that's been running for about 13.5 billion years and keep going with the theories that we know really work, just not together. Ooh, look at the time. Very quickly... Let's have a look. Here's how scientific materialism says the universe came about. In the beginning was, their quotation, an infinitely dense point with zero volume. I asked Michael Lamar, where do they say it comes from? He says, no, you're not allowed to ask that question. It exploded and formed the universe. No one knows why. Another question you're not allowed to ask. It's still accelerating after more than 13 billion light years. Many aspects are not understood. Humanity is an accident. Evil, aesthetics, values, and morality, well, they're just mysteries. Here's what biblical faith says. God created the universe. He spoke it, information and uh, string theory, out of nothing. Humanity was created in his image and had a major falling out with him. Spiritual death was the result and evil was a consequence. Now God redeems and restores through the life, death and resurrection of Jesus and Christ makes us whole again. Friends, here is the answer that materialism has for your life. 
you're a clod of barren earth. Just read an article on Newsweek that the suicide rates are accelerating out of proportion in the USA. More people died of suicide than of war and uh, um, murder put together. Why? Well, they've got all these demographic charts and everything, but not once do they say because scientific materialism has got no message, there's no hope. And what happens when you add water? Ah, yes, the life of God begins to spring up. And what is that life of God? And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. That's the hope, you see. He'll be called a friend of God. And so, as we journey, it is in good company. The king walks beside us, and finally we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us have grace or be thankful by which we serve God acceptably with reverence and godliness and godly fear. Where are you today? Maybe you've never put your faith in Jesus. Well, your life is barren. Just add faith and see it become a garden of delight. Let us pray together. Great God, how astonishing that you should speak our faith, our hope into reality the same way you did with the universe. And as we celebrate that in closing, may every shaky faith become a firm structure built on a foundation of God himself with Christ as the one who accomplishes it and a testimony of 4,000 years verifying it and all to the glory of your name. Amen.